dead, saints all over the world gather on Sundays to not only remember the death of Christ, which he died on a Friday for our, sinners, for our sins, but he rose from the dead on a Sunday, um, and that is our resurrection hope. So I'll just say it once more, once more, one more time. Happy Lord's Day. Um, we have this resurrection hope, and uh, you might be going through a dark and difficult season of life or a brighter and encouraging season of life, but either way, there is hope for you. And one of the things we want to do in this church is create space to inch towards hope and not rush towards hope. Because if you're going through a difficult season and we rush you towards hope, we actually short-circuit the whole process of grieving and hope. And there's not that much hope when you try to rush into it. There is hope, and it's certain and sure, but it doesn't always come at the snap of a finger. And so if you're in one of those seasons right now, uh, even as we gather this morning, that's okay. It's okay to be there. Just keep walking with the Lord, and we'll walk with you as God gives us grace together. My name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors at this church, and so it's a joy to continue our series. And so, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, and we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 3 for our scripture reading, though we are overviewing the whole book. So if you don't have a, a Bible, you can look at the hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you and turn to Ezekiel chapter 3. So maybe that's around maybe 736. Is anyone there with the Pew Bible? I'd guess it's around 736 or so. 735. So if this is your first time looking at the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from yours. Um, and so uh, we're just going to get a picture here into Ezekiel's mission and his commission from God for his ministry as we introduce and think through the whole book together and what God has for us. So here, God's word from Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 3 through 21. He, that's God, said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat the scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with this scroll I am giving you. So I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to the many peoples of unintelligible speak or a difficult language whose words you cannot understand. No doubt if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they don't want to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hard-headed hard -hearted and hard-hearted. Look, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I have made your forehead like a diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. Next he said to me, son of man, listen carefully to all my words that I speak to you and take them to heart. Go to your people, the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them this is what the Lord Yahweh says, whether they listen or refuse to listen. 
The Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me, bless the glory of Yahweh in his place, with the sound of living creatures' wings brushing against each other, and the sound of wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit, and Yahweh's hand was on me powerfully. I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were living by the Kebar Canal, and I sat there among them, stunned for seven days. Now, at the end of seven days, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him, you don't speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood, or your blood will be on, or his blood will be on your hands. Is another way of translating that. Verse 19, but if you warn a wicked person and he does not turn away from his wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. Now, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, and I put a stumbling block in front of him, he will die. If you do not warn him, he will die because of his sin, and the righteous acts he did will not be remembered. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the righteous person that he should not sin, and he does not sin, he will indeed live because he listened to your warning, and you will have rescued yourself. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, take the words of Ezekiel 3, take the message of the book of Ezekiel, take our future readings of the book, and even these weak words and a weak attempt to try to summarize the book and apply it to our lives. We pray that you would give us space to think about the book, to sit in the message of the book, and to keep with the pace of this book as we inch our way and move our way towards hope. In Jesus' name, we need your help. So we ask you now. Amen. Amen. Francis surprised me on Thursday. We went to a book tour event called We Go On, and she turned to me during the event. It's an event about grieving, and she turned to me and said, you have to grieve. And I thought, what do I have to grieve about? She says, you have to grieve about First Baptist Church of Hollywood. I said, okay, we'll talk about that later when the event is over. So uh, we we talked about it after, and I just said, what are you thinking when you said we need to grieve about First, I need to grieve about First Baptist Church of Hollywood? She said, well, you have dreamed of pastoring a church in the city of LA, in the heart of the city of LA, to set up a hub church there. And you keep bringing it up every so often, you'll make a joke. And so I just think you're, maybe you're not over it. And I thought to myself, I think she's at least 50% right. I, and part of me is like, I like to say things to get under her skin anyways. And it riles her up when I say, we should go to First Baptist Church of Hollywood. So it's not really like, there's that part of me that just likes to be an annoying husband. But the other part, the other part was like, yeah, maybe there is something there that I need to grieve about. I need to grieve about the death of the vision, the death of a dream of, again, pastoring a hub church in a prominent, one of the, there's no heart of the city of LA. LA is so spread out that there are many hearts to the city of LA, but one of the hearts in the city of LA. And I thought, ah, she's right. Because when visions and dreams that we're attached to dies, 
we feel the loss. It hurts, and we grieve. Swoop, who's a rapper, uh, wrote in the song We Go On about this grief and these, these dreams. And he just names a lot of different dreams that different people have. He was grieving his own dream of when he was 25, he was an up-and-coming rapper. And by 35, he's like, things are not the way it's been 10 years later. But he writes this. He says, after you pick up pieces of shattered and broken dreams, after you get to see that the ladder to hope it leans, after the disappointment when officers beat the trial... After the missed appointments, it's hard to conceive a child. After you're wishing, Lord, I just want to walk down the aisle. After you get the point that tears water the smile, you prayed every prayer, you sang every song, you gave him every care. Now tell me, where do we go? Wanting to get married, wanting to have a child, different disappointments in life, and you're stuck, you feel stuck. When visions and dreams that were attached to dies, we feel the loss. It hurts and we grieve. A lot of times that, that could be attached to a person, right? I mean, if you lose a loved one, your vision of, of, that, of that person dies. Or, or a loved one, an, an elderly family member who's no longer able to communicate and loses their memory and has dementia. And now your vision of how you thought the next years of life and communicating would be are not the way you're realizing it's not going the way you envisioned it to be, and a part of you dies. It hurts. Now, Ezekiel here may have been grieving over his dream. We don't know this for sure, but Ezekiel was a priest, and he was called to be a priest in Jerusalem. But here he is in Ezekiel chapter 1, and in Ezekiel 1, you can turn there, we're going to read it in a second. Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon at the river grieving because he's not in Jerusalem at the temple being the priest. He always envisioned his life as a priest serving Yahweh in the temple. But he's not even in his country, in the city of God, before the temple of God. He's in another country in exile. And as he, so he grieves, perhaps. I mean, as best we can tell, his, his, his dream was dashed to a thousand pieces. When these dreams die, we feel the loss and it hurts. And Jesus said... Here's maybe one key verse to, to think about the book of Ezekiel. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. Blessed are those who what? Mourn, for they will be comforted. You don't just go, you don't walk straight into comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. It hurts. There's grief and pain. And you can't microwave the process of pain. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when I think of comfort, I'm thinking of full and final comfort. I'm talking about peace and security and life and joy and communion and purpose. Wholeness not just for me, but wholeness for all those I love as we worship and enjoy God together. Now, can we, in this broken world, when we have all had, and if you haven't, you're maybe young enough, you're too young maybe, and that's okay. As you get older, there will be certain dreams, you have aspirations, but they will change and God will crush them. Some of them. Can we still hope in God and trust that there will be comfort? That it really blessed are those who mourn because they will actually be comforted? Can we be sure that we will reach this comfort? One of the quotes that uh, John O. wrote in the book We Go On, the book tour that we, the event we were at, he says, tragedies don't ruin us. Hopelessness does. Tragedies don't ruin us. Hopelessness does. 
And praise God that he will not leave his people without hope in the pit of tragedy. He won't leave you there. He gives you hope through mourning. Not around mourning, not under mourning, not avoiding the mourning and the grieving. He gives us hope through the grieving. Now to get here, to get to this hope through this grief, and to get the message of Ezekiel for us today, we need to understand what Ezekiel was doing. So again, if you're in Ezekiel 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, verse 1, while I was among the exiles at the Kebar, by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And when was this? On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jeho Jehoiachin's exile, the word of Yahweh came directly to the priest Ezekiel's son, Ezekiel, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kedar, Kabar Canal. Yahweh's hand was on him there. So we know exactly when this was. It was in 593 B.C. Jehoiachin was exiled in 597, so five years later in 593 B.C. I think they even have, some scholars have the exact date, July 31. 593 BC. When he was here and he gets a vision from God in exile. And we'll, so to understand Ezekiel's message to you, Bethany Baptist Church, family and friends here today, first we've got to understand what, what Ezekiel was saying to the original audience there in exile. Here's what he was saying to them, not to us, but to them. He's saying to the Jews there in exile, hey guys, we're being judged for our sin and our city way back there in Jerusalem, it's going to be destroyed. God's going to judge us for our sins. So you know what we need to do? Jewish family, we need to mourn and recognize that this is our fault. This is our sin. We need to recognize it and mourn over our sin. And you know what? The nations will also be judged. So let's repent. Let's hope in God's promised future for us. We will be back in the land. He will reestablish a temple. But right now, guys, we need to mourn because it's going to be destroyed. And so Ezekiel starts prophesying that in 593. In 587, six years later, it's going to be destroyed. And then Ezekiel prophesies all the way till about 571. So about 23 years of prophetic ministry is, is Ezekiel's ministry. So if that's the message then, I think one of the mistakes I would make in preaching today is to preach with an emphasis on hope when Ezekiel's original message to them was emphasizing mourning. Now, there is hope in the, in the, in the, in the passage or in the, in the book, but you've got to read 33 chapters to get there. And 34 through 37 is like the really good, hopeful, joyful, um, you know, parts of gospel, gospel goodness and grace. And I don't want to just rush to chapters 34 to 37 or else we're going to short circuit the way the book unfolds and the way we get to hope through grief. And so here's the main goal, and you have it in a handout. Clark has um, papers there, so, and then did you, give, did you give half to Josh? So Josh, go on this side, Clark, go on this side. If you're a guest here, I emailed it to the church members, but if you're a guest here and not a member, they have the outline of the sermon there. We're going through the whole book, so just raise your hand, and they'll pass out a sheet of paper to you just so you could follow along as we go through the whole book of Ezekiel, okay? So here is the main goal. So just raise your hand, and, and they'll hand it to you. Main goal of this sermon for us today is this. Mourn over sin and judgment so that you move toward the true and captivating hope in this broken and grief-filled world. That second part, the so that you can forget that for now. Here's the main thing. You need to mourn over sin and judgment. Mourn over sin and judgment. Your sins, our sins, the sins of our society, the sins of our neighbors, the sins of our country, the sins of other countries. 
mourn over sin and God's judgment on us so that you move toward true and captivating hope in this broken and grief-filled world. So how does mourning help us move toward hope? There are four ways that mourning helps us move towards hope. Let's try to cover these four ways in 45 minutes. All right? Number one, mourning sin and mourning judgment helps you receive God's rebuke and pronouncement of judgment. So God is pronouncing judgment. God rebukes us of sin. But we can't receive that if we don't mourn over our sin. If we don't mourn over the sins of others. If we don't feel and receive that, that, that news and grieve, we can't receive the rebuke and the pronouncement of judgment. But we need to because God pronounces these things for us. And so here there's a breakdown in chapters 4 through 7. You have judgment predicted. Now, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do a better job than I've done, been doing the last two weeks of, of summarizing and picking spots instead of going to all the chapters. So in chapters 4 through 7, in, in chapter 4, Ezekiel, so Ezekiel's prophetic ministry, you guys might wish that pastors here would do it. He would act out his message. So Ezekiel was, in chapter 4, he was supposed to lay down, go out of his house, lay down on the floor every day for 290 days. He would get tied up, and he would, he would sit there strapped to the ground, and he would cook his bread over a fire, and what's keeping the fire alive was supposed to be human poop. And as a priest, he was saying, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. So God says, okay, fine, you could use cow poop. So every day, there's a fire with cow poop, and his bread is being cooked on it as he's bound. And then after the 290 days like that, he's supposed to turn to his other side, for 40 days to represent the, the, the siege against um, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And when you're in siege, there's going to be famine and you're going to be bound and you're strapped and you can't go anywhere because the armies are surrounding your cities and you're going to have no food. So it's like you're going to be eating whatever you can and it's going to be nasty and gross and unclean but that is the judgment coming on you Israel or came on you Israel and that's the judgment coming on you Judah because of your sin. And then in chapter 5, he has another vision where or he, God gives him another thing. All right, all right, Ezekiel, you need to cut your hair and cut your beard. Just shave it all off. Not, not a big deal for me, right? So um, just cut off your hair, cut off your beard, and then you're going to do three things. You're going to divide it into three piles. And one of them, you're going to take a sword and you're going to just start chopping up and, and just cutting up the hair. The other, the, the next third, you're going to burn with fire. And then the last third, you're going to kind of throw it up into the wind and let the wind scatter it. Because when I come to judge my people in Jerusalem, a third of them will die by the sword. A third of them are going to starve by famine because there's going to be no food and nowhere to run. And a third of them will be picked up and scattered among the nations. Judgment is coming to my people because of their sin. And so if you look at chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, here's the judgment declared. Look at chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Here's the declaration. The end is now upon you. I will send my anger against you. God is angry. Do you understand that God can be angry? My anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you, but I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know, and here's a key phrase, I'm not going to read this often, but this is repeated dozens of times in Ezekiel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Then you 
you will know that I am Yahweh. I will judge you. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I will judge the nations. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I will save my people in the end. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who keeps his covenant. So in Ezekiel 1 and 2, I'm not going to take time to explain that vision because it, you read it and it barely makes sense when you read it. And I feel like if I took five minutes to explain it, it wouldn't make sense to you either. Ezekiel sees a, a very uh, weird, unfamiliar vision of God's throne. So there's like a bunch of wheels and there's four, four animals with wings on it and there's four heads on each animal and there's a throne above it and there's something like a figure shining and it's God's throne and Ezekiel sees that and God gives Ezekiel the commission, which we read in Ezekiel 3, which is to go, to go and speak this word to the people. So, so Ezekiel sees a vision of God's glory that's above the cherubim, which is what the Ark of the Covenant represents. And where's the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be? What city is the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be in? Jerusalem. Where in Jerusalem? In what room? The Holy of Holies in the temple, right? That's where it's supposed to be, and God's glory sits on top of that. I, I need to say one more thing about Ezekiel as he's declaring judgment here. Remember what, what God said, and this, this passage scares me because I feel like a wimp and I feel scared to obey God sometimes. Do you guys read what Ezekiel 3 said? I, mean, I read it to you. Did you guys notice what he said? That you're a watchman? And when God gives you a word of judgment, so you're supposed to tell your neighbors, hey, God's going to judge you. And if they listen to you, if they don't listen to you, they're going to be judged for their sin. But what's going to happen to Ezekiel? Their blood will be on Ezekiel's what? Hands. If you don't tell your neighbors the gospel and the judgment to come if they refuse the gospel, they're still going to be judged for their sins. But God holds us responsible for those that he's sending us to share the gospel with. I wish those verses could be erased from the Bible when, when I'm not in my good self, when I'm not trusting the Lord, because I'm scared. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to, how much blood is going to be on my hands? It's, e it's easier to preach here on a Sunday than go to my neighbors and just tell them, hey, you know, um, if you reject Jesus, you're going to go to hell for your sins. But God's telling us in Ezekiel 3, that we're responsible. If he gives you a word to give to others, like he does to Ezekiel, you're responsible to share it. And he, God even told Ezekiel, are they going to listen or not listen? They're not going to listen. They're going to be hard-headed and hard-hearted. And I love what God says to Ezekiel. And I'm saying, Lord, give this to me too. He says, I'm going to make you hard-headed too. You're, you're gonna, your head's going to be as hard as a diamond. And you'll be able to meet them there and give the word to them. Okay, there's just a word on, we need to declare judgment. Ezekiel here is declaring judgment. And so in Ezekiel's vision, in chapters 8 through 11, again, I'm going to su summarize this. God see, or Ezekiel sees a vision of God. So just, you guys got a more picture of this with me. I'll get to a few verses in chapter 8 to read in a second. But um, remember, when did God live on earth with his people? When was God on earth? The very first time God was on earth. Where? Garden of Eden, right? Man sinned and God kicked the man out of the garden, right? Did God stay, but was God still there? Yes, God was there. It was covered, guarded by cherubim, actually, right? Angels. God was there, man was kicked out. Then the flood came, and what happened to the Garden of Eden? It got flooded with everything else that got flooded. So there, God moves out, right? God, Eden's not on earth anymore, at least as far as we know, because the flood rearranged everything. When does God move back to earth? When does God come back down on earth? On Mount Sinai, 
right? He comes down on Mount Sinai and dwells there. And then he tells them to build a, build, tells the, the Israelites as they wander the wilderness to build a tabernacle, right? At the very end of Exodus, so you go from Genesis 3 when God, when he kicks man out to Exodus 40, as soon as they're done building and they kind of tie the last bow on the tabernacle, what happens immediately once it's done? The glory of God, the cloud what? It rushes in and God moves back in to dwell right there in the middle. They got the camps of the tribes all around the tabernacle, but God is there. And then they build a temple. They get to the promised land. Solomon builds a temple. They're not even done putting the last pieces of the temple. They're almost done, but not even done. And as it's almost done, what does God do? He fills the temple with his glory again in 1 Kings chapter 8 or 1 Kings 7. It's right there, 1 Kings 7 or 8. He fills the temple with his glory. And the, the people who are working on the temple, they all have to rush out of the temple because they can't stay there because the glory of God basically pushes them out. And what's the point there in Jerusalem now at the temple? God is there. And then you get to Ezekiel 8. I'm gonna, I was going to turn to some verses, but I think i got to summarize just because I'm looking at the time. You get to Ezekiel 8. And in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel sees the, it's almost like he has a live Facebook feed or a live YouTube feed of what's going on in Jerusalem from Babylon. And so he, he's looking and watching what is happening. And what he sees is, he sees the glory of God right there in the Holy of Holies. And then it, get, it moves up, but stays there. And then God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what do you see that's going on in the temple? And in chapter 8, verse 12, in chapter 8, 8, 8 verse 12, they're, doing, they're committing idolatry and darkness. They think God doesn't see. And in chapter 8, verse 16, they turn their back on the Holy of Holies, and they look east, and they worship the sun that's rising in the east. There's Yahweh, the God who made the sun, right? On day four of the creation. And they're turning their back on Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the temple to worship the sun in the sky that God made. And God says, they're sinful, they're sinning. Um, and so God is going to judge them. Interesting. Now, here's why I'm saying that we need to mourn. Look at chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6. So there's all this sin going on in the temple in Jerusalem. And in 9, 4, it says, pass throughout the city of Jerusalem. He's telling these, in this vision, these people who are going to go through um, these six people who are going to execute and kill and judge Jerusalem. He tells some of them, go throughout Jer the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of, of the men who what? Sigh and what? Groan over all the detestable practice committed in. Those who are mourning, right? Some are grieving, not all of them. But there are a few there in Jerusalem who are grieving. And what does God say in this vision with these angels who are basically coming down to kill everyone? Hey, go out throughout the city, put a mark. You know, the, you know, we have the mark of the beast in, in Revelation and the seal of the lamb. Here's the seal of the lamb, so to speak. Put a mark on the heads of all those who are mourning. And then verse 5, he spoke to the others in my hearing. Pass through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, as well as the children, even the babies and the older women. But do not come near anyone who has what? The mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who are in front of the temple. Start killing them. Who is God sparing? Those who mourn over their sin, the sins of their people, the sins of the city, the sins of the society. There's again a clue to the call to action. The call of this, of this book is to mourn over sin. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 4. The, 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 the glory of God moves up 
and then it moves to the east gate in 10, 10, 18 through 19. This glory of God is moving up from the temple. It goes to the east gate of the temple, and then 10, 18, and 19. It moves to the threshold of the temple and stops above the cherubim. And then when you get to 11, verse 22 and 23, what happens to this glory of God? Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them lifted their wings, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. The glory of Yahweh rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. So what happened? Guys, picture this. Glory of God is right there in the Ark of the Covenant. It lifts up. It moves out of the temple. It moves to the eastern gate. It goes to the temple mount. Then it moves to the eastern gate of the temple, of, the, of which the temple mount and the city wall is, is the same eastern gate. It's still in Jerusalem, though. Then the glory of God actually leaves Jerusalem and goes to the mountain east of Jerusalem. God's glory departs from the temple. God moves out. Remember, God moved in, right? The tabernacle and the temple, and now God moves out. Why? Because of their sin. Will God leave forever? Where does God go? Will he, will he leave his people who hope in him and turn to him? Will he leave those that have that mark of mourning? God's leaving his city. He's leaving his people. This is a tragedy of all tragedy. This is just like leaving, getting exiled from the land. It's just like Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden. If you can't live with God, that's what hell is. That's what judgment is at the end of the day. To be separated from living with God. And here, God is leaving because of their sin. So let's look at their sin. Because the sin is communicated, it's communicated in chapter 12, chapters 12 through 24. In chapter 12, verse 2, um, look at 12 verse 2. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but they do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear. Why? For they are a rebellious house. In chapter 13 verses 8 through 10, they have false prophets who are prophesying peace, and they are condemned. In chapter 14, look at 14 verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, then the word of the Lord came to me as the elders came to Ezekiel to ask for a word. That's what you do if you're elders, right? If we had a true prophet here in Bellflower, and we needed some wisdom for BBC, you could count on the four elders of Bethany Baptist Church going to that true prophet and saying, hey, we need a word from the Lord. And that's what they do. The elders go to Ezekiel and they're asking for a word from the Lord. Look at verse two. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. These men have set up idols where? In their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. Should I actually let them inquire of me? That's a devastating question. Should I let them even seek me right now? Because as these elders, these spiritual leaders, these city leaders, the leaders of the people of God are coming to ask for a word from God, as they're asking, God, lead us, give us wisdom. Meanwhile, in their hearts, have set, they've set up what? Idols. They're worshiping other gods while they're trying to seek wisdom from the true God. And God's like, should I even let them inquire of me? Look at chapter 20. The same, same question comes up in chapter 20. Same thing. They're seeking God in chapter 20, verse 1. They're seeking and inquiring of Ezekiel. Then look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Look at verse 3. Son of man, speak with the elders of Israel and tell them this is what the Lord God says. Are you coming to inquire of me? As I live, I will not let you inquire of me. Wow. God, I want to seek you. I don't care. I don't want, I don't want you to come. God is blocking them from seeking him. Does that seem, 
I mean, that's scary. If God stopped me from seeking him, I would freak out, right? Like, Lord, I need you. I need you to not block me. But God's like, nope. I got no time for you. Stop, stop seeking me. Stop asking what I say. Why would God turn away someone or some group that's seeking him? The answer is in verses 30 through 32 of chapter 20. Look at verse 30. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. Are you defiling yourselves the way your ancestors did and prostituting yourselves with their abhorrent things? When you offer your gifts, you sacrifice your children in the fire. You still continue to defile yourselves with all your idols today. Should I let you inquire of me, house of Israel? As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. When you say... Why? Because what are you saying? You want, my, you want my advice, you want my leading, but verse 32, when you say, let's be like the what? Let's be like the other nations, like the clans of other countries, serving wood and stone. What you have in mind will never happen. Why are you asking me for my opinion when you just turn right around and worship other gods? Stop. Stop pretending. Stop fronting. Stop acting like you really want a word from me. You don't want a word from me. You want to continue in your idolatry with me giving you a cover. No. Stop inquiring of me. You know, we sang a line um, in Whatever My God Ordains Is Right. Look at verse 2. It's on page 3 of your bulletin. Or you can just listen. It says, Whatever my God ordains are, is right, he, will, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. You see that line where it says, he will not deceive me? Look at chapter 14. Go back to chapter 14 one more time. Chapter 14, verse 9. This is God speaking to the elders through Ezekiel. If the prophet is deceived and speaks a message, so if the prophet is deceived and he has a lie and he speaks that lie... Where did it come from? It was I, the Lord, who deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people. They will bear their punishment. The punishment of the one who inquires will be the same as that of the prophet. Wow. What is God saying there? Now, this isn't Bible, right? Whatever my God ordains is right now. What did God say? What is he doing to the prophet? He's going to deceive that prophet. That prophet's going to take a lie, he's going to take it to the elders, and the elders will take that lie because they want that lie, and then God's going to judge them for believing the lie that God put in the prophet. What do you do with that? Does that feel unrighteous? It almost feels unfair. God, you're holy. Is God sinning in deceiving the prophet? Yes or no? God is holy, but, but, but he's, is it a sin to deceive a prophet? Why does God do this? He does this because they don't want to hear God's word in a meaningful way. They don't want to heed it. They want the lying prophets to tell them what they want to hear. But is God wrong for, to send lying prophets? And here's why I'm saying no. I'll give you one reason here. That's a hard question. Let me just admit that that's a hard question. But let me give you some thought here. God is not deceiving you when he sends a lying prophet if he told you that he would. And if he sends you the truth and you continue in your false sense of wanting to hear God's word. God ordains that prophets go and deceive. 
Um, God ordaining that prophets go and deceive is not God lying, but God judging the people for their sinful commitment already to lies. They're already committed to the lies. And not only that, God sends truth tellers right alongside the, the liars to tell them the truth. So they actually get to choose. But because they're already committed to the liars, where are they going to go? To the lie. So God sends the liars and tells them, I'm sending the liars. So he's not deceiving them on the whole. He's actually telling them. This happens a lot of times in the Bible. This is not the only time it happens. Well, my favorite one is Micaiah. Um, I wish I could tell that story now, but that's one of my favorite because that's just so vivid about God going into the throne room of heaven, sending a lying angel, an angel to lie to the prophet. It's, a, it's where Ahab dies. I think it's Ahab. Yeah, it's just a crazy story. But the point is, this is not, this is not an isolated incident. God often sends lying prophets, but he never sends them without the truth tellers because God is a God of truth. He's not ultimately lying to them. He's giving them the judgment for what they already want. And that's true in Romans 1, right? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know why people reject God? Why we reject God? Not because we don't know enough knowledge, because we don't want him. And God judges us. He judges you for not wanting him. The problem is not his word. The problem is not your head. It's your heart. It's what you want. And their idolatry is scandalous. In chapter 16, man, I wish I could just preach a whole, I will preach a whole sermon, Lord willing, one day on chapter 16. But if you're going to feel the sin, you got to feel the images that God puts. So let me just give you something here. In chapter 16, he tells the story of Israel this way. Israel was like a baby that was about to die. Um, they were given birth. Israel's a baby. They didn't even put salt on the baby and left. They left the baby in the blood and just left the baby outside. And there's a baby crying about to die outside. God walks by, sees the baby, and he picks up the baby and he washes the baby and takes care of the baby. And then he raises this uh, young baby girl. This baby girl grows up. He clothes and provides for the baby girl. Then the baby girl becomes a teenage girl and then an adult girl. And she becomes the age of marrying. And then God marries this girl. And he takes care of her and provides for her and loves her in purity and holiness and, and lavishes her with good gifts. And then when she's at this height of exaltation in her beauty and in her resourcing, she takes all that beauty and exaltation and she turns and prostitutes herself. She starts sleeping around. Look at verse chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. But you trusted in your beauty and acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. You took some of your clothing and made colorful high places for yourself, and you engaged in prostitution on them. These places should not have been built, and this should have never happened. You, on every high hill, you built an altar to worship another god. You're an adulterous, promiscuous, sexually immoral whore. In 1620, not only are you a whore and you're whoring around, though you're my wife, you sacrifice our children. Verse 20, these are my children too. And you sacrifice our children. Aren't they my kids too? And then you go to verse 25 and 26. Look at 25 and 26. You built your elevated place at the head of every street and turned your beauty into a detestable thing. You spread your legs to everyone who passed by and increased your prostitution. You engaged in promiscuous acts with Egyptian men, your well-endowed neighbors, and increased your prostitution to anger me. Verse 32, it gets worse. You adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband... You don't even sleep with me. Men give gifts to all prostitutes. But you, the prostitute, gave gifts to your lover. You're paying them. 
to sleep with you. So you were the opposite of other women in your acts of prostitution. No one solicited you. When you paid a fee instead of one being paid to you, you were the opposite. In chapter 23, you have a similar picture in 23:14. But she increased her promiscuity and she saw male figures carved on the wall, images of the Chaldeans engraved in bright red, wearing belts on their waist and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like officers. Look at verse 16. At the sight of them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. That's Babylon. Then the Babylonians came to her to, to, to the bed of love and they defiled her with their lust. But after she was defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she flaunted her promiscuity and exposed her nakedness, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I turned away from her sister. It's the north and the south at this point. Verse 19, yet when I turned away from her, she multiplied her acts of promiscuity, immorality, remembering the days of her youth when she acted like a prostitute in the land of Egypt and lusted after the lovers whose genitals, sexual members, whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose omission was like that of stallions. So you revisited the depravity of your youth when the Egyptians caressed your nipples to enjoy your youthful breasts. Can we read this at church? I mean, Ezekiel was preaching this to the people and all the children. Your sin is whoredom. Your idolatry in your heart is whoring after other gods. It's adultery. That's what idolatry is. It's spiritual adultery. So we need to feel the weight and mourn over our sin, over the sins of Bethany Baptist Church, our church family, the sins of other Christians here in our society. We need to mourn, not just look down on them in self-righteousness, mourn and grieve. In chapter 18, they, they can't say, well, the reason we're getting judged is because of the sins of our fathers. No, everyone dies for their own sin. And the injustice and society you inherit in your generation, you're responsible for how you respond to your generation. You can't blame your fathers for it. And guess what? You're guilty. That's what Ezekiel 18 is saying. In chapter 22, there's a list of sins. And I already said this. Why do they sin? Let me just, before we get to the next point. Why do they sin? Why do they turn from the Lord? Why do they challenge and belittle the Lord? Why do they tear his name down as common and weak and not honor his name as holy? At the bottom line, it's because they don't know God. That's why God keeps saying, you forgot who I am. I will judge you and I will save you so that you will know that I am the Lord. Because right now, you don't know that I'm not, I am the Lord. Spiritual adultery and idolatry flows from a heart and mind that does not know God. If you indulge in your idolatry without repentance, you don't know God. You don't know him. And that's why. And so in chapter 24, it, the temple is destroyed. And Ezekiel is not even supposed to mourn. Remember how Ezekiel's acting out what's going on? So it's all about mourning, but they're not mourning. So Ezekiel says, fine. Or God says to Ezekiel, fine, you don't mourn either. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Your wife is going to die. And when your wife dies, your wife's going to die today or tomorrow, whenever he gives a commission. Your wife's going to die and you're not to mourn. Don't mourn. 
Don't do any of the normal grieving stuff. You don't mourn when your wife dies. The next night, his wife dies. And Ezekiel doesn't mourn at all. And they're like, what does that mean? Well, it means that just like my beloved, the delight of my eyes, my treasure, my joy is gone, the temple's going to be destroyed. Your joy, your treasure, the temple where God dwells, our treasure as a community, as a covenant people, it will be destroyed. And you're not to mourn because you deserve it. And so the whole point of this first point, which is the longest point, is mourn over sin and judgment because it helps you receive God's rebuke when he pronounces judgment because he's pronouncing judgment on his covenant people. Number two. Okay, let's move on a little bit quicker. Number two. Mourning helps you tremble at the sin and judgment of others. Chapters 25 through 33. I'm not go- you have the verses there. I'm not going to actually read any of them. I'm just going to tell you. Ammon is judged for mocking God's people. Mocking God's temple, mocking God's land, mocking Israel and Judah. Edom is judged for their vengefulness towards God's people. Remember what God said in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham? Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. When they're cursing God's people, they're cursing God's temple, they're cursing God's land, they're cursing God's city, God says, I'm coming back for you now. So he judges them. Then he judges Tyre for their self-exaltation. He judges Egypt for their pride. And then... He judges Judah one more time. Look at chapter 33. Go to chapter 33. 33 verse 30. So here they get the word. Now, they didn't have Twitter in that day, right? Where you could get news right moment by moment. You could know what's going on in Ukraine like right now, right? You just read your tweet and you could get live tweets from people in Ukraine in the war right now, right? But Ezekiel had... He had God, God gave him the word, right? He didn't need Twitter. So, so the day that the temple falls, Ezekiel announced it. Announced it. He says, hey guys, today, right now in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away from where we are, the temple is destroyed right now, today. So he gives them a live update in, in chapter 33, verses 21 through 22 is when he, his mouth gets open because, because, um, because Jerusalem has fallen. And then look at verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of their houses. So they're talking about Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the one who gives them the breaking news. One person speaks to another, each saying to his brother, come and hear what the message is that comes from Yahweh. So my people come to you in crowds and sit in front of you and hear your word. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? So here they are. They know Ezekiel's a prophet. They know he gives the latest update. So they're going to keep coming. They're going to get their family, their neighbors. Hey, guys, let's go to Ezekiel. He's got the word. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to go there to hear a word from the Lord? You'd think it would be a good thing. So they go there to hear the word of, from the Lord, but I didn't finish the verse. 31. They come to hear your words, but what? They don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you are like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on the instrument. They hear your words, but they don't what? Obey them. They hear your words, but they don't heed your words. They are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. James says in James 1.22, deceiving themselves. I was speaking to a bunch of different neighbors this week. We had a barbecue and talking to different neighbors. One of the neighbors this week just asked me, um, what do you think about having a seared conscience? And this is... This, I was telling the person, I'm preaching through Ezekiel today, actually. And when people come to hear God's word, but they don't obey it, they actually grow in hard-heartedness. 
they grow in deceiving themselves. It's a dangerous thing to, need to know and hear God's words. When you hear and know God, it's dangerous to come here every Sunday and hear a long hour sermon. Okay? Why? Because if you hear God's words regularly and you don't obey them, you harden your heart and you get worse, not better. So children, listen up children. You're here. We don't have any kids class for the next few months. We're trying to get it back. But you're hearing God's words, kids. And God wants to give you faith. Don't harden your heart to God's words. That's what, that's what Judah did. And so they're judged for it. So we should tremble at the judgment that God pours out on these nations and pours out on Judah and on Jerusalem. And what's the final judgment? For them, it's exile. But what, does that, what, what, what judgment does that judgment point to? Hebrews 9.27 says, says, It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So what kind of death is it? If it's eternal life, what kind of death is that? Eternal death. In hell, under God's judgment forever. Even if you're a Christian, actually, especially because you're a Christian. I hope if you're not a Christian, same thing for you. you need, we need to tremble at the fact that people are going to hell for their sins. So is there any hope? If they're supposed to mourn over sin and judgment so that they move towards captivating hope, is there any hope? Is there hope for Israel? And the answer is yes. Let's go to point three. Mourning, why, why is mourning a good thing and why should we mourn? Mourning over sin and judgment helps you hope in God's promises. So here's good news. And again, I didn't, I'm not spending the majority of this, like I'd love to spend the majority of my sermon here, but I think given the way Ezekiel is to be applied, we need to spend more time on the mourning part. But there is hope here, okay? In chapter 34, they have bad pastors. If you've ever had a bad pastor, raise your hand. Just kidding, don't raise your hand. No. <laughs> if you have any bad pastors right now and you're a member of BBC, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, Bad shepherds, bad pastors who are not taking care of the flock in verses 1 through 6, but they're scattering the flock. They're taking advantage of the flock. They're fleecing the flock for their own selfish, self-centered gain. And God says, I've had it with you shepherds. I've had it with you pastors. And so what he says over and over, look at verse 11. This is interesting. I want you to catch this. In verse 10, he says, I'm against the shepherds. And in verse 11, he says, see, I myself will search for my flock. Verse 12, I will look for my flock. I will rescue my flock. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples. Verse 13, I will shepherd them on the mountains. Verse 14, I will tend them in a good pasture. Verse 15, I will tend my flock and let them lie down. Verse 16, I will seek the lost and bring back the strays, says the Lord. Uh, I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will shepherd them with justice. Verse 17, as... For you, my flock, the Lord God says this, look, I am going to judge between one sheep and another. Verse 20, therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Verse 22, I will save my flock. I will judge between the sheep and one another. So there's all these human pastors, all these human shepherds, and they're all bad. So what's God's solution? Who's going to be the pastor? Who? Not Ezekiel. Who's the, who's the eye speaking? God, over and over and over again, I will be their shepherd, I will be their shepherd, I will be their shepherd. And then you get to verse 23. I will establish over them one shepherd, one pastor, my servant whom? David. And he will shepherd them. He will tend them. 
himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. Okay, over and over. I will shepherd, I will shepherd, I will shepherd, I will shepherd. And then I'm going to appoint a shepherd over them, and his name is David. So who's shepherding? Is it Yahweh or is it David? Unless the son of David is Yahweh in the flesh. Unless Yahweh, the good shepherd, comes down himself and takes on human flesh as a son in the line of David to shepherd his flock and save them from the unfaithful pastors and the unfaithful shepherds who selfishly fleece the flock. That's the only way. And God promises to shepherd them, and he promises a human shepherd, David. In, verse, in chapter 35, he promises vindication from their enemies. In 36.15, he says that he will no longer allow insults of the nations to be heard against them because they've been shamed. In chapter 36, look at 36, 24 through 28. For I will take, here's the, here's the new covenant promise. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. So here's the new covenant promise. Chapter 36, verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you. Verse 25, by the way, verse 25 here, this is what Nicodemus should have had in his mind when Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And he's all, what? And he says, you must be born of water and the blood. And Ezekiel, uh, not Ezekiel, Nicodemus is like, how can I get, I'm a grown man. How can I get back in my mom's womb? That's not gonna, I don't fit anymore. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of Israel? Haven't you read Ezekiel 36, 26? Listen to this verse. This is what Jesus is talking about, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you, and I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will save you from all your uncleanness. You will be born again. New heart, new mind, new human spirit, new God, the Holy Spirit, living in you, born of water and the Spirit. Sprinkled with water, cleansed, born again. God promises to his people, I will come and give you my spirit. Which is why Calvin read the passage about being filled with the spirit. One of the applications is, if God has given you new birth by the spirit, and he's given you his Holy Spirit, then you must therefore go forward and be filled by the spirit. But that's another sermon, so let's not go there. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel sees a vision of dry bones. Now I'm looking at all of you, by God's grace, you're all healthy here. But I just want you to look around. Imagine if this church, which is almost filled with people, there's a lot of empty seats here, but imagine if this room was filled with people, but they were, it was all bones. It's just you guys all decayed right here. And 100 years later, you're, all, you're still sitting in the seat you are, but it's all bones. That's what Ezekiel sees. Just a valley, not just a, a room, but a valley of just a bunch of bones. And God says to Ezekiel in chapter 37, Ezekiel, preach to the bones. Tell them to live. So Ezekiel starts preaching God's words to, God, to these bones. And the bones start connecting. And then flesh starts to come on these bones. And then these bodies stand up, but they're still, they still have no life in them. And he keeps preaching. And then the Spirit of God, the breath of God, enters. Just like Adam, right? When Adam was formed in the dirt. Here the breath of God enters into God's people. And all of them become alive. And they become God's army. God raises the dead. Those who are spiritually dead. Are you spiritually dead? 
Are you stuck in your sins? God gives his word and spirit to give you life. Peter is praying for revival here in Los Angeles. There's 80,000 people in Bellflower. I'm praying, Lord, please save, save 8,000, save 10%, save 25% here in Bellflower. Just, it's a small city. Just turn the city upside down. And it does, none of them have to come to BBC. Let them go to all the other churches that are preaching the gospel here. I don't care about our church. Just, just let them get saved and just flip this city for your glory. How does that happen? Speaking God's words by the power of God's spirit and God raising people from the dead. And he brings his people back together. That's, that's the good news. Here's the gospel. Okay, this is the gospel. This is how you're born again. This is how you receive God's spirit. Uh, who's the shepherd? The good shepherd, the son of David, is Jesus Christ. God, here's the good news. If you're not a Christian, just listen up for one minute here to this main message of Christianity. God himself became a human and took on human flesh as the son of David and lived the life you should have lived without sinning. And yet he bears the judgment of God on the cross for your sins and my sins. He dies for sinners. On the third day, he rises from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And that's a big deal because we're sinners and we deserve God's judge, judgment. We deserve hell because God is holy and he made us. And we're dead. We're stuck. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And now God, okay, if you're a BBC or you probably don't hear this, now God goes around with people talking about this message and God gives his spirit to people when they hear this gospel and then they believe in Jesus. And they repent from their sins. And they're given new life. And they come alive, and they get a new heart, and a new mind, and they get a new spirit, and then they get God's spirit living in them, and then they get to live not only now, but for all eternity, with God, forgiven of their sins, and given new life. If you're not a Christian, that can happen to you right now where you're sitting. If you would look to Jesus, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, if you would repent and turn from your sins and turn from your own goodness and turn from your own religion and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, God will give you new life. That happens by the power of God's spirit. I pray that God gives that to you. Children, I pray that God gives that to you, that you trust in Jesus. He's your only hope. Your parents are not going to save you. They cannot save you. Mommy cannot save you. Daddy cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. So trust in Jesus. And then God's in chapter 30 and 39, God um, gets victory over the enemies. So mourning over sin and judgment helps you hope in God's promises. But you can't hope in God's promises of new life if you don't grieve over your sin. If you don't feel the horror of your adulterous life. All right. That's number three. So if we're gonna mourn over sin and judgment to move forward towards grief, um, how do we, how does this hope really captivate us though? Because PJ, I get it, Jesus died for our sins, uh, we can be forgiven, but how does it actually change my life so that I actually live this way and it changes the way I think? Do you know that visions, when you could see something clearly and you could almost taste it, it motivates you? Um, we have a few members renovating their houses right now. Right? And you could kind of see it at first, but then the more you see it come together, the more it could kind of give you life. I remember we're talking about renovating this auditorium so that it could fit 400 people in it. And so we've talked about it for a while, but when uh, Jolie's dad drew up a, a draft sketch of what it would look like and the whole parking lot and everything, just looking at that sketch and seeing it clearly, man, that just made your, that makes my heart like leap with like excitement. It actually captivates my imagination. And this last point, point four, 
when you lament over your sins and you mourn over your sin, it actually, it helps you, it enables you to actually be captivated by God's vision. Because here's the final vision. Look at chapters 40 through 48. It helps you to be captivated by a hopeful vision. Now, some of you interpret this, and some people interpret 40 through 48 as a literal temple with a literal city. I got two pastors here who are hearing me preach, and they probably have both different views. So one might be a literal temple and a literal city, and the other say it's more um, symbolic. Um, and in our church, you could believe either one. You're still in our confession of faith. I don't think it's literal. I think it's symbolic because I think it lines up with Revelation and the way Revelation uses it and even how Jesus talks about the temple in John chapter 2 and the way Paul talks about it later. So I'm going to interpret it here as, um, as what it's symbolizing in terms of this captivating vision of hope. So let me just be brief here. In, in chapters 40 through 43, you have a vision of the temple and its rooms and its chambers. Remember that um, in 587, the temple was what? Destroyed. And God, Ezekiel already told them, guys, our temple's gone. It's over. That temple's done. So does that mean God's not going to move back in? Is there going to be no temple? Are we going to just be stuck in Babylon forever? Yes or no? Will God bring them back? Will God keep his promises? Yes, but then he has to bring them back to the land. Well, what does the land look like? In chapters 40 through 43, God's going to make this glorious temple with rooms. In chapter 40, verse 4, look at 40, verse 4. Here's the command uh, to Ezekiel. Report everything you see to the house of Israel. So we're supposed to hear this report so that we could picture it. And then here's the application in chapter 43, verse 10. Look at 43, verse 10, as we're looking through 40 through 43. So the temple and the chambers are rebuilt for the priest and their ministry. In 43, verse 10, it says this. As for you, son of man, describe the temple of the house of Israel so that, what's the purpose of, of getting this vision? So that they may be what? Ashamed. Ashamed of their iniquities. Again, there's the main goal. That's weird. Why do I want them to see a picture of the end time temple? with all of its glory, so that right now where you're sitting, right now where they're sitting, where you're sitting here, you would be what? Ashamed of your sin. So that you would mourn. You would feel the weight of your sin and bring it to God and appropriately grieve over your broken dreams and your sinful, your sins and the sins of others around you. That's why we get this vision. So they're supposed to observe the temple and see the temple. Um... In chapter 43, they're supposed to purify themselves. Look at chapter 44 through 46. Now you have the priests and the Levites in the temple. So um, their duty is in chapter 44, verse 20 through 23. Let me give a church application here. Look at 44, 20 through 23. What are they supposed to do in 44, 20 through 23? They may not shave their heads or let their hair grow long, but are to carefully trim their hair, the priests. Look at verse 23. What are these priests supposed to do in verse 23? They are to what? Teach my people the difference between what? The holy and the common. And they're supposed to not only teach, but also what? Explain to them the difference between the clean and the unclean. So here, brothers and sisters, in this future temple, the, the people, the priests are supposed to teach what's holy and not holy. They're supposed to explain what's clean and unclean. That's what priests do. And guess, who's, guess who, are the, who are the new covenant priests today in the world and in Bellflower, in Southeast LA? Who are the priests? Christians. So what are we supposed to be doing? Teaching what is holy and unholy, clarifying to people what God accepts as clean and what re God rejects as unclean. In other words, teach people God's word, or to use Christ's words, disciple all nations and teach them to obey what? Everything I commanded. And you don't just do that individually, we do that as a church. 
When we exercise the keys of the kingdom, we say, this is gospel, this is not gospel. This is a public Christian that we're taking in and baptizing. This is a Christian that we're excommunicating because as he lives his life, it is not clean. How do you declare what is holy and not holy? How do you declare what is clean and not clean? You do it individually in your gospelizing, and we do it corporately when we gather as a church to exercise our collective responsibility as a church. If you're not a member of a church, you must join a church if you're going to obey God's word and teach others to obey everything Christ commanded. But BBC, you do a good job of this. We need to keep growing in it. Even as Peter prayed, we have a member right now on stage three. We need to chase him for his restoration. Declare what is holy and unholy, what is clean and unclean. Now remember, let's go to the last two chapters here of Ezekiel as we close. God's glory left the temple, right? In chapter 11, you remember that? God's glory left the temple? Why? Why did God's glory leave? Because they sinned, right? Will God be gone forever? Where does God go? Will he leave his people forever? Now this new temple is in the new city, and the new city is called what? Jerusalem. That's what you would think. But it's never called Jerusalem in these, eight, in these nine chapters, which is strange. It's never called Zion or Jerusalem. It's not given a name. Look at chapter 47, verse 1. You know it's in the middle of the city? Chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. In chapter six, verse, or 47, 6 through 12, this is a river of life that flows from the temple, and it goes all the way to the Dead Sea. You know why it's called the Dead Sea? Because every life that would have been in the sea is what? Dead. No life can thrive in that sea. And guess what? This river of life flows from the temple in Jerusalem. It goes all the way to the Dead Sea, and guess what happens to the Dead Sea? It becomes a sea filled with what? Life. It's filled with life. And this river that flows from the temple gives life to everyone. There's trees on both sides of the, of the river of this temple, and it's for the healing of the nations, it says in Ezekiel. And then the tribes of Israel are, are all allotted around, around the temple, and they all get their allotment in the promised land of Israel. And in the city of Israel, in this new city, there are 12 gates around the perimeter with each tribe. And look at the very last verse of chapter 48. What is this city called? It's not called Zion. It's not called Jerusalem. The perimeter of the city will be six miles. And the name of the city on that final day, in the end, the name of that city will be what? The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Yahweh is there. God will live where? With his people, in his city, in his promised land. God will live with us. It says in Revelation, read Revelation 22, 1 through 5 for homework. Cap, get captivated by this vision. Revelation 22, 1 through 5 is this vision. It says in verse 3, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and the river of the water of life was flowing down. It says in verse 3, there will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4, here's my favorite part. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, if you're going to become a Christian, you are going to see God's face. What does that mean, PJ? I don't know. I don't know what that means, but, but it says that in Revelation 22, 4. We're going to live with God. Verse 5 of Revelation 22, we will reign with him, not for a month, not for a year, not for a lifetime of 80 years. We will reign with him on the new earth, which is the new city where God dwells, which is the new temple. And the Lord is there and we will reign with him forever and ever and ever.
God will be there with us. And we know God will be there with us because God already came for us. We will be there in the final heaven because Jesus brought heaven down. When he came, he brought heaven down. He brought the temple and the presence of God down here to earth in his own flesh. He was the temple. And then when Jesus ascended to heaven, is the temple gone from earth? Yes or no? When Jesus ascended to heaven, the, the, the temple in his flesh, is the temple gone from earth or is the temple here today? It's here today. Where? In the church. Yahweh will be there in the end because Yahweh was here when Christ came and because Yahweh is here right now in the gathering of local churches like this one. God is here right now in this room with us. His covenant presence. It's not perfect. We're not seeing his face right now, right? We see each other's faces. But we have an experience of God's presence every Sunday when we gather together. And because we are here, gathered in God's presence, we know that we will see God in the end. And you know where this river of life flows from? Can you drink this river of life today, in part? Do you know, you can, you know where it comes from, though? It, well, it says it comes from the temple. So in John 7, verses 37 to 39, you know where the river of life, of life comes from? Let me just turn to the last passage. We're, we're done with Ezekiel. Look at John 7, 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, this person will have what? Streams of living water flow, flow from where? From deep within him. Now he said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Well, Jesus is already glorified. He ascended to heaven. So guess who we have now? We have the Holy Spirit. So where does the living water come from? It comes from Peter and Rachel and Grace and Bethany and Jasmine and Andrew and Tina and Danielle and Ryan and Becca. The, the living water actually flows from God's people. You gather every Sunday and you know what we're supposed to be doing? Drowning each other with living water. So we share takeaways after this, right? And what is, what's supposed to flow from our souls? Living water. And what are we supposed to do every time we gather in God's presence in God's temple? Drink deeply of God's living water as we see the end. So brothers and sisters, just to recap, let's mourn over sin and judgment. Because when visions and dreams that we're attached to, that's attached to our lives die, we feel the loss and it hurts and it grieves us. So let's mourn over sin and judgment so that we move towards this captivating hope of God's presence. Mourning over sin helps us receive God's rebuke and pronouncement. It helps us tremble at God's, at the judgment to come. It helps us hope in God's promises and it helps us be captivated by the final vision of hope. So here's my closing application to you, brothers and sisters. Take time to grieve over sin. Don't rush grieving. Don't rush mourning. Don't rush toward hope. When someone is sad, don't feel like you need to give them a happy thought and snap them out of sadness and that's your ministry to them. You might need to just sit with them in their sadness and be with them. That's ministry of hope as well. Let's walk with God in the process. We know that he will come through and, he will, and we will reign with him in joy and peace and comfort forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to be captivated by hope, but not cheap hope, not quick hope, deep, captivating, Christ-centered, God-exalting, heavenward hope. 
And so we pray that you'd help us to grieve and mourn over sin and judgment, even today. Our church is broken, churches are broken, our own lives are broken, our non-Christian neighbors are broken. We're, all, we're here facing your sin and judgment and discipline. And Lord, you told us, blessed are those who mourn. So help us to mourn that we might be comforted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, friends, we're gonna take...